Well, good morning. How are we? If you are around here regularly, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, what's happening? We just sang one song and now you're getting up? What's going on? Our ushers are coming. They're going to take the offering. If you are new with us, just don't worry about that a bit. That is for those of us who call this place home. We recognize that God calls us to give our time and our talents and our treasure back to him because they are all things that we've received from him. So we do that as an act of worship. As the ushers are coming, we wanted to change up the order of worship this morning. Some of you guys are coming in. Just keep coming. No worries whatsoever. We want to switch up our order of worship this morning a little bit because, you know, normally what we do is we sing in preparation to hear God's word. And that's a good thing to do, to sing and to prepare ourselves to receive God's word. But it's also the right response to God's word to worship him in response to the truth of his word. Amen? And so we're just going to switch that up a little bit today. We're going to have a little time. I'm going, to, I'm going to mind my time well today, Lord willing. And then we're going to have some time on the back end where we're just going to pray uh, and even have some time to be prayed for if something uh, from God's word is striking you and you just feel like, okay, I need, to, I need to have someone kind of pray with me over that. So we're going to do that. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today, Isaiah chapter 12. And we'll have it on the screen for you. If you do not have a Bible of your own, please do make your way out to the lobby on the way out, on the way out today and just ask them for a Bible. We'd love to give you one. Just free gift from us because we believe God's word is powerful and strong and important and we want you to have it in your hands. All right, as you're turning, let me pray for us. Let <clears throat> me pray that you would cause your word to sit in authority over us today and we would say to you that everything that you have to give us, everything that's from you, we want. We don't want to resist anything that you want to give us. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see today what your word would say to us. And Spirit, I would pray specifically that you would teach your word through me so that it wouldn't just be my ideas, my thoughts. We don't need that. But what we do need is your word and its power to come into our lives. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do your teaching work today. We pray that you do your purifying work and your unifying work. We pray that you do your revealing work and your empowering work today. All these things your word tells us you do, and so we pray that you do them now in our midst today. And we come with eager expectation. We don't come here, we would say to you, Lord, we don't come here just because it's a habit. We come because we eagerly expect that you have a word to speak to us. And we also know that the expectation then is that we would respond rightly to that word. And we wanna do that. By your power, we'll be able to. So we pray that you would give us that power, give us that strength to respond rightly to your word today. We love you, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, several years ago, when I was a student ministries pastor in Austin, Amanda and I had spent the day with a bunch of our high school kids, and we had, um, we had a day camp for kids with special needs. This is a great day. So basically the point was just to say to parents who had kids with special needs, drop them off. We'll hang out with them. We'll teach them. We'll spend the day with them. We'll love on them. And then you guys have the day to do whatever it is you need to do. And it was just a great day. And we had a blast. We had so much fun. But, you know, we were kind of newlyweds at the time. And we, you know, we were still in that phase where you've been apart five minutes. And you're like, I missed you. I missed you too, you know. And so we'd been apart all day. We'd been kind of working in different areas of the church that day. And we got back together at the end of the day for a little debrief at the end of the day. And someone was up front. They were talking to us about, oh, this is what happened today. And this is what we did. And I put my arm around Amanda, you know, and I'm just, um, you know, we were still very snugly at that point, right? And so we're, I have my arm around her. And what I don't know is when I do that, there is a mom of a high school student behind us at the, back of the, at the back of the room and she makes a beeline for another mom and she goes up to her and she, picks, she pokes her on the shoulder and she says, 
I am so uncomfortable with how affectionate Trent is being with that high school girl. Thankfully, thankfully, that woman knew Amanda and I and said, oh, no, 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 that's not, that's not a high school girl. That's his child bride that he married, <laughs> who is older than she looks. So anyway, high five. So she shared that and, you know, everyone was relieved and all was well, all was good. Um, and then that woman relayed that story to us. And, you know, what's interesting about that is the reason that mom was so upset. I mean, I, I tell you that story for this reason. The reason that mom was so upset is because we inevitably or invariably, we know what relationships are supposed to look like, right? We know what specific dynamics should look like in specific relationships. We know what the dynamic between a student and their pastor should look like. It, it shouldn't look like him having his arm around her, right? In the midst of a room and, and pulling her in, right? It shouldn't look like that. Uh, we know what a relationship between a husband and wife should look like. We know what a relationship between siblings should look like. And so that mom saw something she thought didn't fit the relational category. So that's not the right relationship that's taking place there. And so she was bothered, right? Because if a pastor treats his student like he would treat his wife, then there's something wrong. We could probably also say the reverse is true, that if a pastor treats his wife like he treats his students, something is probably wrong, right? Like all side hugs and high fives. <laughs> Nothing else, right? And so we were... You know, we were uh, thankfully relieved in that moment. But here's, here's, again, why I tell you that story. is because you and I, we have a general idea of what specific relationships should look like. Uh, and Isaiah is going to tell us today in Isaiah chapter 12 that there's a way that our relationship with him, with God, is supposed to look. He's going to say when God saves people, the relationship that God has with those people whom he has saved is supposed to look a certain way. It's supposed to have certain dynamics to it. And my hunch is... My guess is that many of us are settling for less than the kind of relationship that we could have with God, either because we're not exactly sure what it's supposed to look like or because we maybe know what it's supposed to look like, but we're a little afraid to press into it. But what Isaiah is going to tell us today is that there's a kind of relationship that you can have with God when he saves you that is meant to be powerful and profound and rich. And so... You know, my encouragement today, like if you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus and you're trying to figure out if he's, what he said about himself is true, if it's right, if you're examining that, just the invitation to you today is really just think about the kind of relationship we're about to talk about and just ask yourself, would I want that? Like if that could exist in my life, would I want that? And you know what, church family, those of you who have claimed the name of Jesus and you're his and you walk with him, the same question is for us, Right? Am I experiencing this kind of relationship with God? And if I'm not, what's preventing that? What's keeping me from experiencing what the word of God declares is the kind of relationship I should have with him? Now, let me warn you up front that there's essentially kind of two responses typically that any one of us would have to this kind of a, to this kind of a word from God's word. Typically, if we say, okay, the word of God says, this is the kind of relationship that a person can have. And then I look at my own relationship with God and I say, it doesn't bear the marks of what that says. Then I'm gonna do one of two things. I'm either gonna say, well, since I'm not experiencing that, therefore God's word must be off base or something about that must not be true, right? You can choose to say that or, and hopefully we recognize that's probably not the best response. The better response is to say, if I'm not experiencing what God's word says I could experience in my relationship with him, then there's something off in me. 
And that needs to change so that I might experience the thing that God has for me. You with me, church? Does that make sense? I pray, I hope, can we have the ladder? <laughs> can we have the ladder approach to God's word, all right? So look with me at Isaiah chapter 12. Let's read it. Let's look together. It's only six verses. We've been kind of biting off multiple chapters at a time over the last several weeks. So hopefully this is a little bit of a breath of fresh air. A breath of fresh air. I'll say as a pastor, six verses, much easier than three chapters, okay? So here's what it says. Isaiah 12, beginning in verse one, says, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy. O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst, catch that, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That last verse right there, verse six, when he says great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel, you and I read past that, but the original readers of this text would have received that and been completely astounded by what Isaiah was saying there because what he's just said is holiness. The holiness of God is his otherness. It's the fact that he's separate from all sin. It's the fact that he's high above us, that he is not like us, that he is exalted. And so to say that the Holy One is where? In your midst is a complete juxtaposition of ideas that are really opposite of one another. That this God, who is perfectly holy and other and exalted, also chooses to dwell in your midst, right next to you, beside you, with his arm around you. It's an astounding, it's an astounding verse as Isaiah is writing it. They'd be absolutely blown away by this idea. So, Let's remember where we've been, all right? So you notice in verse one at the very beginning and then again down a little bit further into the text, it says, on that day, well, that should cause us to ask the question, well, what day? What day is Isaiah talking about here in Isaiah chapter 12 when he says, on that day? Well, what we know, we know what the day is because he alluded to it in chapter 11. So if you weren't here last week, let me just catch you up to speed. When we looked at Isaiah 11 at the end of that chapter, what Isaiah did is paint a picture of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back and ushers in his kingdom of perfect peace. Do you remember this? The language, it was this beautiful imagery that Isaiah painted where he says, on that day when the, when the king comes, there is going to be ushered in a day where there will be, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. He says the, the bear and the cow will basically hang out together. All right, little children will play over the holes of cobras and will not be bothered because when he comes, he's gonna make everything right. All the stuff that was, that was absolutely fractured, not just in us and between us and him, but in all the created world, he is going to make right. Do you know, church, that there's gonna come a day where Jesus will return. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. There will be no more sickness or disease. There will be no more strife between people. We will be in a kingdom of perfect peace. And somebody say amen to that, please. Because that day's coming and that's the picture Isaiah is painting. And he's saying that's when this king comes, that's what it's gonna be like. And it's glorious and it's beautiful. That's the day he's talking about. 
So then he follows that in Isaiah chapter 12. And he says, okay, I've painted the picture for you of what it's gonna be like when the king comes and when he makes his kingdom known on the earth and when everything is made right, oh, it's gonna be great. And then he goes into Isaiah chapter 12 and he begins to say, on that day, the people whom he saves are going to say this to him. This is what their response to his salvation is going to be. Now, here's my conviction. You tell me if you agree with this. If Jesus is gonna come back one day and my response, according to Isaiah 12, is gonna be to say and declare the things uh, that are true in this chapter to him on that day, that I can begin to say those things to him now because he has saved me today and I will still be saved by him tomorrow and I will walk out that salvation the next day. And so the things that are true of our relationship with the God who saves us on the day that he returns and, and brings the finality to that salvation is still true today, right, church? They're true today. So this is the deal. What Isaiah is saying is you can have a kind of relationship with God that you may not yet have imagined you could have. If there's something in you that recognizes that my relationship with God feels somewhat half-hearted, if it feels somewhat just born out of a sense of duty or uh, like it's, it's a have-to rather than a want-to, Right, you guys have experienced that. If it feels a little bit less connected than I'd like it to feel, or perhaps a lot less connected than I'd like it to feel, what Isaiah is saying is that doesn't have to be the case. God can do something different than that. And by the way, let me encourage you, the way this chapter talks about this idea of people being saved, right? That's very church language, but it's the language he's using here, so I'm gonna use it intentionally. But recognize that this idea of I am saved Right, which is the language we often use, like I'm saved by God, is the wrong way to speak about it because it puts us at the front of the sentence and God at the end of the sentence. And guess what should happen? We should flip that order. When you talk about what's taken place, please make God the hero of the story, not you. You need to declare that God has saved you. Yes, church? God has saved you. He's the the one that authored it. He's the one that initiated it. He is the one that brought it to fulfillment. He's the hero of the story. You have responded to that in him, but he's the one that worked it. All right, let's begin to look. There's four things I wanna show you in this chapter about what a relationship with God looks like between God's saved people and God who saves them. So look again at verse one. The first thing we see is this. We can be perpetually astonished, perpetually astonished by God's grace. In verse one, he says, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Okay, so the first thing Isaiah says is there's gonna be this overflowing thanks. And so the question becomes, why are we giving thanks? What is the thing that evokes thanksgiving from the saved person? Follow the text. It says this, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. All right, so let's trace that picture. What's he saying? What Isaiah is painting a picture of is the picture of someone who's God, who God's anger and wrath is aimed directly at. It's as if his anger is a runaway freight train and we are on the tracks and we cannot get off. And it is coming at us and it is speeding and we are terrified. And in the moment, perhaps the 11th hour, right before that anger descends upon us and completely crushes us, God moves us off the tracks, puts his son on the tracks in our place and saves us from his wrath and his anger and shows us mercy. And then, as if that weren't enough, 
Isaiah doesn't just say, you were angry, God, and you turned your anger away from me. He doesn't just say that. He says, you also then became my what? My comfort. This is the picture he's painting. It's as if to say, you, have, you had God's anger, I had God's anger aimed at me, and it was headed straight for me, and God didn't just remove me and say, okay, now my anger's not directed at you, but I'm still indifferent towards you, because that's possible, right? That's a possible option. If you really think about the emotional status that you can have with a person, right? There are people with whom you're not angry, but you're not, you don't love them. You're just somewhat indifferent. You're like, they're there. They, they have no impact on me one way or another. They're just, they're just there. And God could have done that. He could have said, okay, I'm gonna turn my anger away from you, but ultimately I'm just gonna be indifferent towards you. Not, not angry, wrathful, but not loving. And what he says is what? It's as if he says, not only have I turned my anger away from you, now what I've done is I've sat down beside you, put my arm around you and said, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. And have you ever been in a traumatic experience? You ever been in a hard moment? And, and you remember how you felt after that? You're just almost, you're shaking. You can't move. You feel frozen often because of whatever has just occurred and you're trying to get your bearings. And what do you need more than anything in that moment? You need someone who just sits down next to you and goes, they don't give you a lot of advice. They don't give you a lot of counsel. They just sit down, they put their arm around you and they just comfort you. They just say, you're not alone. I'm here, it's gonna be okay. That's the picture God is painting. He's saying, I will become, I have become your comforter. I have become your comforter. Now, here's my challenge to you, right? If you've been in church a while, you've heard that concept. That's not new to you probably, right? And so you're thinking, okay, great. I, I get it, I get it. Jesus bore the wrath of God for me. Uh, I've heard a thousand pastors say that, whatever, I challenge you to really contemplate that reality and not erupt with thanksgiving. And I'm not talking about contemplate it for like five minutes. I'm talking about get alone with God and get in Ephesians chapter two. Let me read it to you because this is just one of the richest texts in all of the Bible. And just ponder this reality. Listen to Ephesians chapter two. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then one of the greatest phrases in all the Bible, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That's the most powerful but God in, I've ever heard, isn't it? But God, being rich in mercy. Think about the juxtaposition of those ideas that he just painted there. He said, you were, by nature, a child of wrath. In other words, that was the right, that's rightly what should have come to you as an inheritance. Wrath, God's wrath. And then in the very next verse, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the what? Great love with which he loved us. Now this is completely astounding. Do you see how odd that is? Whose wrath is it in verse three? It's God's wrath. And whose love is it in verse four? It's God's love. And 
Here's, here's our natural human response to that is because you and I have never experienced what that is like. God is declaring in that moment in Ephesians chapter two that he is both wrathful towards sin, that anger is a part of his personhood, and yet he loves and therefore he saves. Now you and I tend to be one or the other. We tend to be angry or we tend to be loving, but we don't tend to be both at the same time. And even if we mix those a little bit, we don't mix them rightly or well more often than not. We are a mess. And so when we read that, perhaps we think there's no way God can be both these things. But right here, he is telling us that's exactly what I am. I am filled with wrath towards sin. I am angry and I am filled with love for people. Now, perhaps, right, when you contemplate that, when you begin to contemplate the truth of that, I, I, again, I just challenge you to not be, to not just erupt in thanksgiving like verse one talks about. I like to run. Anybody like to run? Yeah, a couple of you. Last service, I had several people just go, no. No, we don't. We do not like to run, right? So I like to run. And when I go run, I typically will listen to a sermon or I'll listen to, you know, I'll listen to worship music. And as I'm going, there are moments when I am running where I am listening to something, perhaps a song comes on, and it's just talking about the fact that God has turned his wrath away from us and that we have been redeemed by him. And I begin to cry while I run. And then it's like my, it's like a, is it voluntary or involuntary? Which is the one, which is the one you can't control? Involuntary. Thank you, all you science majors. Good job. All right, they didn't teach that in seminary. It's almost as if there's an involuntary. I literally am running with my hand up like this. I look like a crazy person running down the street because I can't stop. There is a, there is a response of thanksgiving that comes out when you ponder this absolutely astounding reality. I just can't help it, right? Ponder that truth. Now, some of you maybe have a challenge with the idea of God is angry. And perhaps you've been in a context where that was what was emphasized maybe even, is God is angry, he's wrathful, and there was no declaration that God is also perfectly loving. And so you never learned how to live in the tension of those things. You never learned how to have to wrestle with the fact that God possesses attributes perfectly and fully, and he always expresses them rightly, but they're not always comfortable attributes for us, right? God is big and wild and beyond us. Any God that you can contain in your own thought life and perfectly get everything about him is not a God worth serving. And so this God who is big and grand is both filled with wrath and anger and also perfectly loving. But here, let me offer a few thoughts because it is perfectly normal, I would say, to have a challenge with the idea of God as angry. And if you grew up in a home where anger kind of ruled the day, it's probably even harder. And so I wanna say a few things about that that might help you kind of ponder that rather than just say, well, if that's the kind of God that there is, then I, I want nothing to do with him. Because I've certainly have had a lot of conversations with a lot of people who've seen a bad demonstration of that and thought, well, then I want nothing to do with him. So let me say a couple things about that. Just, I hope it helps if that's you. The first is this, and I hope it doesn't sound in any way harsh, but it's, it, I'm just gonna say this. Um, if an all-powerful creator exists who made everything then it doesn't really matter whether you like the way that creator is. Does that make sense? Like, you have to deal with that. If, some, if there's an all-powerful being who created everything, it doesn't actually matter whether you and I as creatures like the way that all-powerful creator is. Does that make sense? Our job is to come to 
that creator as they are. We don't get to dictate to them. And if I say, well, I, I, just, don't, I just don't like, that doesn't make that God cease to exist. Not liking who that God is doesn't make that God cease to exist. So that's just, I mean, I know that's, that may sound a little bit tough, but that's just logic. Um, I was thinking about this, reality. Uh, I was thinking about my father-in-law. My father-in-law, his name's Jim. He's a really good man. And uh, he came to know the Lord. He came to, he trusted in Christ when he was in his, I think, mid-20s. And he had uh, gotten married to my mother-in-law. And she had had a relationship with Jesus, but wasn't really walking in it. And, and he uh, had never had a relationship with the Lord, didn't know much about it, didn't really grow up in church, any of that stuff, right? And he, by his own way of speaking, would say, man, I lived a pretty rough life. And so one day, they'd been married a little while, and things just didn't seem to be working that well. And so they, th- they thought, well, what can we do? Let's go to church. They just, I don't know why, they just said, let's go to church, right? That may be you. You may be here today thinking, hey, we just showed up because maybe the marriage isn't working that well. It's tough. We're just wondering if there's anything here that could help us. Well, maybe my father-in-law's story will help you. So Jim and Heather, they show up at church one day and they go and it's fine, it's a fine service. I think they filled out some card or something. They left and then this church took those cards and they did home visits for everyone who filled those out. We will not come to your house this afternoon. It's my promise to you if you filled out one of those connections. But this church did that. They did the follow-up connection. So the pastor shows up at their door. I don't even know if he called in advance, all right? Shows up at their door. Hey, just wanted to check in on you guys. And my in-laws, being the really gracious and kind people that they are, said, sure, come on in. So came in and they're, you know, in their little apartment and they're newlyweds and they're sitting and they're talking. And after a while in the conversation, the pastor, some of you might know his name. His name's David Jeremiah. Um, so Dr. Jeremiah is in their home and they're, uh, they're sitting there. And after a while, Dr. Jeremiah just goes, well, Jim, you know, I think an important question is, if, if something were to happen to you today, if you were to die today, like what do you think would happen? What do you think would happen to you? And my father-in-law, without blinking, said, oh, I'd go to hell. <laughs> and I think Dr. Jeremiah didn't know what to do with that. He's like, uh, no one's ever given me that answer. <laughs> like, normally it's I'm a good person, or I, you know, like, but here's what I love. Like, my father-in-law did not know Jesus, but what my father-in-law knew is this, is that if there's a God I have not lived in a way that could in any way be acceptable to that God. There's absolutely no possibility that I could be, that I have lived in a right response to that God. He just, he just knew that intuitively. And so I think Dr. Jones said, well, do you wanna talk about how we can do something about that? You know, like, there can be a different alternative, you know? And he's like, there's, there's this Jesus and he did something. And then and, and my final right then and there said, yeah, I want everything he's got to give. And he's been a transformed man from that moment forward. His life has never been the same. He has been completely altered by the Spirit of God, a radical transformation, taking anger and just flushing it out of his life and bringing him into peace, making him a faithful husband, a faithful father. And I'm so grateful because I've married his daughter and I've inherited his legacy of faithfulness and his choice to worship Jesus. And I pray that our kids would then carry on that legacy of loving Jesus and walking with him and being faithful and loving and kind. But my father-in-law, he just, he understood, right, that we don't come to God on our terms. We come to God on his terms if we come to him. The second thing I would say is this, if, if contemplating God's anger is a struggle for you, second thing I would say is this, is God's anger isn't like your anger and my anger. God's anger is righteous anger, which means that it is always expressed at the right object. It is always expressed 
in the right amount and it is always expressed for the right reasons. Now think about how different that is from your anger. Right, my anger is more often not expressed in the right amount, not expressed at the right object and not expressed for the right reasons. It is expressed because someone has inconvenienced me, cut me off in traffic, not obeyed me when I said clean your room. God's anger is not like our anger. So don't, don't, don't hear when we say God possesses anger that his anger is like your anger because it's not. God's anger is perfectly righteous, always expressed perfectly to the right object at the right time in the right place in the right way and to the right measure. Third, it's God's anger expressed in his wrath towards sin that actually guarantees that one day injustice will be done away with. Do you know that? There's, if God wasn't angry at sin, then injustice will not be done away with. But because this is part of the attributes of God, one day we can know that he will allow his wrath to fall on all that is unjust, on all that is not right. And that's the guarantee we have that he will make all things right. So if you look forward to that day, recognize that it's God's wrath that is a part of the reason that it will be that way. The last thing is this, and this is the best one. The cross of Jesus enables us to declare that God is both full of wrath towards sin and also overflowing in love towards people. Because without the cross, God has to let go of one of those things. Either God is not just or God is, so he overlooks sin, doesn't deal with it. And if you've ever had someone perpetrate sin, like a grand atrocity against you, you want that to be made right, don't you? You don't just go, oh, well, whatever, no big deal. You expect that a God who's just would do something about that. And so the cross is the statement that he has done something about that. He has punished sin, but instead of punishing those who committed it, he punished his son on their behalf. And so the cross of Jesus makes it so that we can declare without sort of being a farce, we can declare God is just and wrathful and loving and not sort of shrink back from that as if it's something to be embarrassed about. Church, everything that God is is something to delight in. Do you know it? Everything that God is is something to delight in, including the fact that God possesses anger and wrath because it's not like ours, because it's perfectly performed at all times. He holds it as it must be held and it brings about justice in the world. And the cross of Jesus is the thing that allows us to with bold face declare that while God can destroy sin and hate it and get rid of all injustice, that he is deeply loving, perfectly loving. Okay. Let's go to number two then. And we're gonna spend a little less time. We're gonna pick up our pace now here, all right? So the second thing that we see about the kind of relationship that a saved person can have with God is this, is we can have a type of power to serve God that we haven't understood. We can have a type of power to serve God that we haven't understood. So perhaps you feel as you're serving God that you, I mean, ask yourself this question. When is the last time you felt God's power move through you? When's the last time you felt God's power move through you to declare the gospel to someone, to cause you to be empowered to do a specific thing? Perhaps it's your job. The thing that he's called you to do is your occupation. When is the last time you felt very clearly that God's power was moving through you in a way that you could not explain just by your own skills, by your own knowledge set, where it just, you knew God has just shown up in a powerful way. When's the last time? That's a good question to ask ourselves because according to this, 
This is, this is available to us in the normal Christian life. That when God saves a person, he becomes their strength. Look again at verse 2. He says, Behold, God is my salvation. Okay, so there's the, this is a saved person. I will trust. I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my what, church? My strength and my song. Now, we're going to talk about the second one here in just a moment. But the first thing he says is that God is my strength. In other words, what he's saying is you are able to be filled with a type of power from God in order to serve him that pleases him. It's available to you. Now, Here's the other thing you need to understand about that. Whenever you come to God through Jesus Christ, he indwells you with his spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit to live inside you. And that spirit purifies you, unifies you with other believers, reveals things to you about the truth, and empowers you. That's just a few of the things the scriptures talk about that the Holy Spirit does as his work, right? You can remember that with the acronym PURE. Purifies, unifies, reveals, empowers, right? So the Holy Spirit does these things. But we experience, so that spirit never goes away. It's there permanently and indwells us. But we experience the power of that spirit in ebbs and flows. We experience it in, not in a constant state. We experience it ebbs and flows. One of the reasons we experience ebbs and flows to that power is because there are times, and this is clear from Scripture in the book of Acts. You think about some of the kings. Think about Samson in the book of Judges where God specifically pours out his power through one of his servants to accomplish a specific task that he has for them in that moment. And so they, he shows up in that moment and says, I'm gonna give you a unique filling of my spirit's power so that you can accomplish this thing that I have given you to do, whatever it may be, right? It could be any number of things. And so we experience an, an influx, so to speak, of that power, a flow of that power as a result of stepping out to serve God. Now, I would say you experience God's power when you take risks. Do you know that? If you, if you take no risks in serving God, then there's very little chance that you'll experience the kind of power you can experience because you don't need it. His power shows up when it's needed. Now, the second reason that we experience ebbs and flows of the Spirit's power in our life is because of our choices to either love the world or to love God, to love sin or to love Jesus. And that when we tend to fall, when we fall in love with the things of the world, when we're not, when we're not walking in a pure way, when we're not walking in a way that God calls us to, there is, a, there is a, a hindering of the Spirit's power flowing through us. So again and again in the Bible, whenever you see someone filled with the Spirit, right, and a, a, a unique empowerment of the Spirit, it's usually in response to repentance and, and a purifying work that God has done, that God is bringing purity. So church, what that means is, is if you want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through you, you have to put away the things of the world and love the things of God more than you love the things of the world. Now, I will say the point of that is that when the longing for that is not so that you would just experience power flowing through you and go, yeah, that feels awesome. But it's so that you would know, because when the Holy Spirit empowers you to do a work, it's always more effective than when you're just doing it without the Spirit's power. Would you agree with that? It's always more effective when the Holy Spirit is empowering you to do something. And so when you call on that power and you sense it flowing through you because you have purified yourself and called upon God and you have said, I want, I need your power to move and I'm taking a risk to step out and serve you. When that happens... What's so addictive about that, and addictive is the best word I've got for it because it is, what's so addictive about that is that you see Jesus get more glory. 
It's not that you experience power flowing through you. It's that you see how clearly it is that Jesus was exalted and lifted up and God was honored. And you go, that's how I want to spend my life. That's what I want to occur. Does that make sense? Okay, so just listen to a couple of things the Bible says about what happens when the Spirit moves in power, when the Spirit fills us for a unique empowerment. He says that the Spirit gives power to discern the path of wisdom in Isaiah eleven two and Acts 16, 6 and 7. He says that the Spirit gives power to proclaim the gospel and actually have it be effective for people to respond to it in Acts 4, verse 8. He says the Spirit gives power to pray effectively. Romans 8, 26, he says the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In other words, when I don't know how to pray effectively, the Spirit shows up and comes in and intercedes and fills that prayer time in such a way that it's filled with a powerful effectiveness. He says that the Spirit gives power for works of healing in Romans 15, 18, and 19. And he says that the Spirit gives power to overcome spiritual opposition to the gospel in Acts 13, 9, and 11. The Bible paints this picture that we live in a world filled with spiritual powers, spiritual principalities and powers, demonic forces, all right, and angelic hosts, and that God is, there's a spiritual world all around us that is unseen, that we don't see, but it is very real and very much at play all the time. And the Bible says that the Spirit of God enables us to do battle against the forces of the evil one in the spiritual realms. That He comes in and empowers us to say, no, 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 no evil one, my Jesus is stronger than you are. And I won't back down or be afraid of you. That we fight. Every time we share the gospel with someone, every time we're investing in someone's life, we are doing spiritual battle to see that person uh, come to the knowledge of the truth. And that, that is not something that eloquent words can do. That is something that only the Spirit of God and his power can, can do, can raise the dead into life and cause them to see what once sounded like foolishness, 1 Corinthians chapter one, now is the very words of life that only occurs by the Spirit's power. The third thing we see about a relationship with God and the saved person is this. We can feel our emotions intensely without being controlled by them. We can feel our emotions intensely without being controlled by them. Look at verse two and three where he says this. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And then he says in verse three, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. And then in verse five, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. In verse six, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. Now, here's the thing. When he says the Lord is not just my strength, he's my song, the picture he's painting is the picture of someone who is so overwhelmed by who God is that they are bursting forth in song, right? So my daughter, like almost every night, is singing in her room. And when she sings, she does not sing like this. She doesn't go, ah. She sings so loud that I have to tell her to stop because she's waking everybody else up, right? So do you get the picture from this, that this kind of relationship with this God who saved us is just kind of a dull relationship emotionally? That there's like very little emotional response. Like, you saved me, thanks. The picture that's painted. And some of you are saying, I'm just not an emotional person. Yes, you are. 
No, I'm being dead serious. You may not be super expressive. You may be more rational, logical. You've taken your disc profile or your Myers-Briggs or yada, yada, whatever. The God who created you has emotions and he created you in his image. So guess what you have? Emotions. And they can be sanctified emotions. They can be emotions that he redeems for his purposes. But do not tell me, okay? I'm not saying this is one size fits all and everybody's gonna have the same emotional experience. But do not tell me that you are not meant to experience emotions. This does not say shout and sing to the Lord unless you're kind of a reserved person. Then don't worry about it. The response of the person who is saved by God is to feel an intensity of emotion towards God. And I use that word intensity on purpose. You are not, to, you are not meant to, to hear like a dumb, a, a, a dull kind of drumbeat way off in the distance. You are meant to hear the sharp tones of music right up close. You are meant to experience an emotional back and forth with God that is intense. Now, I'm not saying that's every day, every hour of your experience, but you are meant to experience an emotional, an emotional context with God that is rich and has many hues and colors to it. You're made for that. Whether you know it or not, you're made for it. Now, the other side of that, because here's the deal. It can feel like a prison. It can feel like a prison to feel like you don't feel emotions the way you should. Like when your heart is hard, when you don't feel, when you feel indifferent, when you feel apathetic, that can feel like a prison that you need to break out of, right? But the other side of that, the other side of that is always being led about by your emotions as if everything you feel you must act upon. And that is a slavery in and of itself too. To always be forced to, I feel this, therefore I must do that, right? That's the other side of that. But God is so good that he says, I, you are meant as a saved person to have an emotional Emotionally intense experience with me. That's, that's meant to take place between us and yet you will not be a person who is sort of led around by the nose by your emotions. You will be a person who has intellect and wisdom and you'll be steadfast and faithful and not up and down as we can be uh, in, led, in being led about by our emotions. What I call the junior high girl experience of life. <laughs> Last thing that we see in this text is that we can actually, and I get this, so radical, right? We can actually love God so much we wanna tell people about him. We can actually love him that much. Look at verse four and five. Verse four and five say this. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, and then what? Make known his deeds among the peoples. Verse five, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously, let this be made known in all the what? Earth. The picture Isaiah is painting is the picture of the person who's saved by God wants to take the, the knowledge of, that they have received of who this amazing God is to the four corners of the earth. Everywhere they can tell it, they wanna tell it. That's the picture that's being painted here. So friends, can I just tell you this? Like if, if you're not experiencing a, a boldness in sharing your faith, if you're not experiencing a sense of like, I gotta tell other people about this, if you're not experiencing that, one, it could be that there's sin in your life that you need to let go of, you need to walk away from, that's possible, right? But the other thing is, 
It could just be because you are held back by the idea that you think you need a certain amount of knowledge. Like you, you've got to have more apologetic knowledge or have more Bible verses memorized or spend more time in church. And let me tell you, none of those things are bad, but you don't need any of those things to tell people what God has done in your life. What you need is to be astounded by God. You need to be overwhelmed by the kind of relationship that God invites you into. And, he said, and you need to experience it day by day by day. And as you do, look, here's the deal. Any apologetic argument you make, someone can have a counter argument to it, right? But no one can argue with the idea that God has come into my life and radically changed everything about me. When my father-in-law met Jesus and everything changed, what do you think the people around him said? There's no argument against that. There's no argument for Jim was a complete crazy man and now Jim seems to have peace and steadfastness and faithfulness and he seems kind. He's not angry anymore. How would you argue against that? What would you say? There's nothing to say. When God saves you, he invites you into sharing this with other people. And all you need to do that is to be astounded by who he is and walk with him every day. You don't need a whole lot of classes. You don't need a whole lot of information. You need to know that God is on the move and you need to be astounded that his anger was aimed at you and now he's your comforter. And you need to be drawing from the joy out of the well of salvation every day like verse three talks about. You need to be walking in these realities. And as you do, as you do, it just is overwhelming. I'll share the story with you and then we'll have some time to worship. In fact, team, why don't you come on up and get set up and we'll, we'll, that way we'll be all set to, to worship. Uh, I was, we were in London, a man and I were in London and we were there for an alpha conference and when the conference was over, we did a little sightseeing and we were buying just the worst touristy trinkets for our kids. I mean, you know, the keychains and like the mind the gap and you know, whatever. So we're buying all that garbage at a little kiosk in what amounts to a mall essentially. Uh, and we're in there and we go up to the counter to like pay for it. And the, the guy, the young man there, a 21-year-old guy named Abraham. We didn't know that at the time. He's, he's just crying, like crying. He's just working the kiosk and crying. So I said, hey, what's going on, man? You all right? He said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, are you sure? You want to talk about it a little bit? And like, he has no idea who just walked up to his booth, right? Because like, I'm a bit of a bulldog on these kinds of things. Like we're about to find out what's going on in your life. I'm not leaving until we know, right? And so he's like, he's like, no, no, I'm good, I'm good. And so, you know, he didn't want to share much. And so I said, okay, that's fine. I said, look, can I just tell you something? I was like, we believe in, this may sound crazy to you, but we believe in God and we believe he answers prayer and we believe he's powerful and he loves us. Could we pray for you? And he was like, okay, you know. So, just, so we prayed for him uh, and just prayed that the spirit of God would comfort him and point him to Jesus. And, you know, so we were praying, just kind of praying the gospel for him. And we finished praying and he looked up and he's like thank you here's everything that's going on in my life and he proceeded to just tell us everything we were like oh okay awesome you know and so we said we need to connect with this church you need to go over here like this is what we want to share with you and you know go here and there's people there they're great they'll point you to Jesus so anyway so we had that conversation but what was what is always astounding to me is I felt the spirit of God's power moving in that moment I absolutely felt the spirit of God was in control of that moment and was flowing forth in power and all I had to do I didn't have to have a lot of knowledge. I didn't have to be super brilliant. I, didn't, I had to care enough to stop and I had to pray. She said, can I pray for you? Sure. 
and the Spirit of God takes over. And just, just use that as an encouragement, you know? It's as simple as that. You don't have to be intimidated by it, but we want the ends of the earth to come to the knowledge of the King who is ushering in his perfect peace. Let's pray together. In fact, why don't you stand with me? Let's stand, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray that you would now allow us to respond in praise to your, the truth of your word. We thank you for it. We thank you for it. Our right response is to just erupt forth in praise to the truth of your word. So we pray that you receive our praises now and that they would be filled from the knowledge of your word that we've received now and that you would be well pleased with them because they come from sincere hearts and longing hearts that want to know you and know more of you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.